Howdy. Welcome to Undersampled Radio, the show where we talk science, tech, oil, business, politics, and more. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Graham. Together, we're the hosts of this circus. To follow the conversation, make suggestions, or rant and rave, please visit the forum Software Underground at swung.rocks. Yay! <laughs> We're live. Welcome to episode 56 of Undersampled Radio. Uh, we're going to do a very strange version of the show today. And what I mean by that is that our news consists of something we want to talk about with our guest. So before we do anything else, Matt, who's our guest? Our guest today is Fernando Ziegler. I'm saying that right? He's nodding. Uh, I guess so. Yeah. Um, or is, is it Fernando Enrique? Do you go by the kind of double-barreled? Uh, no, I just go by Fernando. Uh, I just started using Enrique just because that's my dad's middle name and my grandfather's middle name. Yeah, okay. It's just became a habit. Yeah, nice. Um, so Fernando Ziegler is a poor pressure, I, I don't like the word expert, but you're a poor pressure wonk. <laughs> What's wrong with expert? Enthusiast. I don't know. I don't... I, I just object a bit to the concept of experts, but Fernando has a lot of expertise. And I agree. On the show notes, it said poor pressure expert, so I changed it to a poor pressure and wilbur stability specialist. Specialist. Uh, like, like Matt's saying, I also refrain from using the word expert. I think there's 50 other poor pressure specialists that are definitely more of an expert than I am. So. Oh, yeah, that's why I, that's why I, I call myself a poor pressure expert. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you know, have, we, have we never have we never talked about the difference between experts and sort of? No, I'm sure we have, and I just ignored you, and I and kept calling myself an expert. Yeah. No. I mean, I you know I I almost feel like some people like you know genuinely are experts, and but it's a it's a tiny. Surely you are one. Well. In some something. Well, I don't know what does what does expert mean. It implies to me a a, th- a thoroughness and um, completeness of knowledge that I, I just don't believe that many people, if if any people, have that. And I agree with that a hundred percent. I think that uh, I myself can't call myself a poor pressure expert. I believe that if people start calling me one, then maybe I will be one. That's I'm just not nice. at that. I'm not at that stage of my life yet. I've been doing poor pressure for about 11, 12 years now. And like I said, there's definitely people that I know that have been doing it for 25 years, published multiple papers. I'm in that level where I believe I have a great understanding of it, but I'm still learning everything a little bit every day. So yeah, expertise totally. cannot be self-prescribed then. No. Well, maybe that's one of the yeah. Maybe that is one of the sort of litmus tests, as it were. But oh, man, you know, I, I, gotta, I guess I have to change my website now. I, th- I think because the risk, <laughs> the risk of of calling people experts is that you box them in a little bit, right? Because you sort of give them nowhere to go when they don't know. So they tend to be risk averse and um, right. And maybe depending on their personality, you might have a hard time saying. I don't know. Um, 
So I, I feel like it's an unfair thing to label someone with, like especially as they walk into the room to give you advice, say. Um, and I feel like in an organization, it's a bit, it does something to everybody else as well because it sort of robs everybody else of the right to an opinion or insight into something. It mm. sort of says to everyone else, shut up because the expert's here, do you know what I mean? And I, yes. I don't like that. I think that's an unhelpful dynamic. <laughs> to me, and I, and I don't know about uh, your work or your experience, but at least for me, I always feel like in every project that I've ever worked on, that's a poor pressure project, or it could be Wilbur Stability, or it could be in Gulf of Mexico, or it could be in Africa, there's every project that I ever worked on is very different than one another. So I can't, I don't feel that out of the blue, somebody can say, hey, well, let's talk to Fernando. He's an expert in poor pressure. Let's talk about poor pressure in the North Sea. I can just say, well, 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 well wait a minute. Like I've only done three projects over there. I, I, I can't consider myself an expert when project number four is going to be completely different than one, two, and three. Yeah, yeah. So, no, totally. I, that, I mean, and that's the thing that may be a little bit special about geoscience is that we are so sort of basin bounded so that, you know, one of the things another sort of um aspect i think of expertise is that actually it can come from unusual places so that someone who's just graduated well perhaps not graduated with an undergrad degree but graduated with a postgraduate degree can certainly have more expertise than anyone else in the room on a particular play or technology or, or method and you know i think that's um so you could call them i suppose an expert on some tiny niche but i think it's better just to talk about their expertise and what they bring, you know, and then it shifts it Is back. Is Siri an expert? <laughs> I, I, I keep hearing that Siri's getting worse and worse. Well, do, I mean, do you know what I mean? No. Siri knows everything, or whatever, Google. Is Google an expert? Google knows everything. Has all the information in the whole universe. I see what you're saying. Yeah, well, may, may, maybe that the internet and Google do change a little bit what kind of expertise is required from humans mm -hmm. but i like i would say that poor pressure uh insights and experience and uh expertise are one of the things i'd rather get from fernando than from google thank you <laughs> <Today>. <laughs> but not siri matt, matt can i make a request sure that you let me intro do your intro at the hackathon and he's <laughs> uh, okay yeah sure whatever yeah! okay you heard it um it's live that's that's recorded but correct on the record I, <laughs> so i'm, I'm trying i was trying to remember when or how i met uh fernando and i and i can't really remember but i i think we just sort of met on the interwebs somehow probably twitter again twitter. <laughs> becoming quite a common pattern with this show but um uh, but you also wrote in the rock physics 52 things you should know about rock physics correct uh was it one or two i can't remember i only did one essay and it was just basically it's not necessarily about rock physics but how you use rock physics to do pore pressure and how it's just not you can't just keep it at pore pressure you can just basically said say that you can use rock physics do pore pressure and then do everything else that comes along after pore pressure Hence the reason I called it poor pressure and everything else. Yeah, right. And it's um, 
if I remember rightly, it is quite a nice, it's almost a little bit like an extended glossary or sort of encyclopedic entries for um, fracture pressure and wellbore stability and concepts like that, which is yes, quite, it, quite a nice way of putting it together. Exactly, and, and, and part of the reason I wrote that is because uh, at, at least when I was a graduate student, there would always be either in a rock physics class or reservoir ge uh, geophysics class, one lesson about pore pressure. Okay. And they would just talk about compaction. This is how you calculate pore pressure. From pore pressure, you go to frag rate and then that's it, end of story. I think a, a lot of people miss that there's a lot of uh, uses from one calculating pore pressure and the fact where that product doesn't just go into a geologist, it also goes to a drilling engineer, it goes to a completions engineer. It can be used for geomechanics, uh, a whole sort of thing, so. Yeah, right, no, it's it's a fundamental concept. You're right, it is, I think, under uh, appreciated, perhaps at undergraduate level, given how many, you know, it, uh, it's right in the middle of everything, even connected with rig safety and, you know, th those sort of aspects, as well as being a technical, tool correct um, and, it, and that's I, actually part of part of the thing that drew me to it is the fact that uh, when i was in grad school like I, uh, I i mostly studied rock physics and i really enjoyed doing the pore pressure aspect of things uh when i was coming out of grad school uh, there's one particular company that offered me a position to work and do and study under a pore pressure expert and i did not want to pass on that opportunity. I mm. felt that it, it's not necessarily just a very theoretical subject, but it's also very applied. It's uh, you work with projects doing a pre-drill study that could take years to, you know, to work it. But then you also have to deal with the consequences and the action that comes with uh, actual drilling operations. Yeah, right, right. And you said in the show notes that you're developing that uh, chapter into a, 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 a presentation? That's correct. So about uh, six weeks ago, uh, a friend of mine, uh, I, I, I wrote on the show notes, Professor Rui Sang. I call him Rui because he and I went to grad, graduate school together. So it's kind of funny that now a friend of mine, now we're becoming professionals. He's a professor. Uh, so he invited me to speak at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette and give a presentation to the students about pore pressure. He thought it would be a good introduction, and he thought my level ex of expertise would probably uh, bring a few more insights on what pore pressure specialists actually do. So the first idea that I thought about is like, well, wait a minute, like uh, a, a good thing to probably bring on the table is uh, expand on the, on the little section that I wrote in the book and talk about the different uses of pore pressure. So just not necessarily about the theory. Uh, you can probably get the theory anywhere. There's, a, there's multiple classes out, like out there, Icon Science, Richard Schwarbrick, Nautilus, everybody, there's a pore pressure class out there, but I wanted to go and talk about the uses of it. Hmm. So that's what I'm gonna do and actually this Friday. Yeah, awesome. So is that at uh, University of Houston? Oh, wait, ULL, what's that? Lafayette. Uh, University of Louisiana, oh, Lafayette. Right, okay. Yes, exactly. So that will be my, uh, this will be actually the first time I give this presentation. And what I hope to do is just kind of 
unfortunately, if there's any UL students listening, uh, they're going to be my guinea pigs. Uh, I'll give the presentation and just kind of tinker with it and then hopefully make the presentation, avail presentation available online on Figshare where nice. people can just kind of draw on it. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Give us, can you give us a, a sneak preview about your top couple uh, uses for pore pressure? Um, well, so, I, I, well, the one thing that I would say is like a, as a pore pressure specialist, one of the things that you read throughout the literature is that there's certain methods that people came up with a long time ago, back in the 1950s and 60s, and those methods are still used in place. Uh, a lot of the methods that were made were by mostly drilling engineers. Throughout the last couple of years, there's been a lot of uh, geoscience uh, added to these pore pressure methods. And I would say probably now, the majority of the pore pressure specialists are either geologists or geophysicists. So part of the talk with regards to the uses of pore pressure, I wanted to at least bring in uh, the geology and the geophysics that go into pore pressure, the data that comes from drilling and the different uses, whether uh, it's to come up with uh, column height estimates, for example, like during exploration, or actual pore pressure and what stability for drilling operations. So you just kind of tie everything into place where you can see the different uses for it. Oh, very cool. Are you going to be, um, are you going to, will we see you at the hackathon? Be cool to see a machine learning pore pressure project. Uh, I registered at the hackathon. I don't know if there is going to be a hackathon. Yeah, that's true. Uh, that could be a good segue. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, so, as most of you have already heard, uh, I mean, I live in Houston, and Houston and a lot of Texas was recently impacted by Hurricane Harvey. Uh, with that in mind, I don't know. There's, I mean, Houston is a mess. I can tell you mm -hmm. that. Now, the last couple of days, I've been helping out a couple of families that suffered uh, water floods within their homes. So basically trying to take their ruined belongings out to the street and then maybe help them out, cut some of the sheetrock and insulation. Uh, with that in mind, uh, not there's a lot of repairs going on and a lot of salvaging going on at this time, but there's also a lot of people that displaced in the west side of Houston where their homes are being continually flooded. Um, with that in mind, I don't know the exact numbers, but recently uh, there's definitely people in the George R. Brown Convention Center. There's people in the NRG Stadium. There's people in the Toyota Center. I want to say there's 10,000 in GRB, 10,000 at uh, NRG. So, uh, with that in mind, I don't know what the situation is looking for in Houston. Uh, today is September 5th. I don't know when you're planning on making this show available for the podcast. But uh, if anybody's an SEG member, I'm sure you've been getting emails with regards to how they're looking into the situation and monitoring how things are going within the George R. Brown Convention Center. At this time, there's 9,000 people there living. That's their home. Uh, and I believe by tomorrow morning, they're supposed to make a final decision whether or not they will be able to hold the place, they'll be able to hold the event in place. Yeah. Uh, in addition to that, 
there's a lot of things that SEG brings. And one of the things that I'm heavily involved in is the APG Student Expo. Uh, we always try to coordinate it in the fall during recruitment season. And particularly this year, we wanted to make sure that it was really close to SEG. So students coming in from out of town could have the opportunity to attend our event. Mm-hmm. Um, the last couple of days, we've been monitoring situation and talking to representatives at the George R. Brown and trying to figure out if we can hold up the event and at what capacity. So uh, today we made the final decision that we will not be able to hold the event at the George R. Brown, how we want to host it. Uh, there's definitely a lot of people that are, that they're living there. So uh, we're in the process of sending out emails to our company sponsors, to our students, to our poster judges, to the poster presenters. Uh, keep in mind, this is a two-day event that we hold at the George R. Brown. Uh, three years ago, we would have about, we almost had about a thousand students and 400 company representatives. Of course, with the downturn, things have gone down quite a bit. So this year we were capping at, at 400 students and we were expecting about 300 uh, working professionals working as uh, recruiters or uh, poster judges. So it's not a small event and it was definitely a very hard decision to make Hmm. with regards to the logistics that get involved with regards to putting the classrooms, putting the interview booths, uh, getting people in town. I mean, it's it's not a pretty sight. I, I mean, I live five minutes away from the George R. Brown Convention Center and I can tell you it's it's Houston definitely suffered, and I can't even imagine what like Rockport looks like in Beaumont. So, yeah, right. No, it's been a, a brutal. Well, I can't imagine how uh, awful the last what 10, 12 days have been. Um, cool. So, and, uh, going back to the original question, will I be at the hackathon? <laughs> Register for the hackathon. That's my answer right now. Yeah. Okay. I was sort of waiting to see what SEG decides to do. Um, although, well, I suppose thinking, well, if SEG goes ahead, then then we'll definitely go ahead. Um, if they don't, then I'm not sure. Um, Correct. And I, I think I was thinking about polling the participants. Um, to be honest, I'm uh, a little fly in here. Uh, I'm especially interested in I mean, the most relevant participants are the ones who are in Houston, which I think is actually most of them, um, and basically just seeing what people, what people want to do, and uh, you know, we're a much smaller event. Um, you know, it doesn't affect, uh, it doesn't affect that many people from a sort of organizational side, uh, and like I say, most people are in Houston anyway, so it's not like people are changing travel plans. So, um, that's my current plan: is basically to make a call after SEG does probably with a poll of the participants. Does that sound reasonable to you? To me it <laughs> does, but I, I think the follow-up thing is whether or not, when SEG would be postponed, at least for our case, uh, we definitely do not, or not able to postpone our event at the George R. Brown within the same year. So if we we're planning on holding our student expo at the George R. Brown, it would have to be next year. Right. I don't know what, SEG's plans are whether or not I mean there's some they're they're a much bigger uh, event than we are sure. so I'm sure the George R. Brown 
they're, I, I mean, they're, they're going to be more willing to work with them. And not necessarily that they're not working with us, but you know what I mean. Uh, I don't know if they'll be able to postpone the event for a month. I don't know if they'll be told that they're, they can't, they can't do anything in, in a month or so. I don't know. There's a lot of I don't knows. Yeah, sure. There's a lot of uncertainty around. Um, it sounded like you yourself, you, I mean, you escaped without any um, damage to your property. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so I live, I live, like I said, I live about five minutes away from the George R. Brown Convention Center. And I actually live about two blocks away from the Brace Bayou, which is a pretty big bayou that goes through the city. It, it doesn't matter. It, it, it was just happened to be, I was one of the lucky ones. Uh, sure enough, within Brace Bayou, that was flooded. Uh, two blocks south, two blocks north of me, that was flooded. Wow. I know people further uh, west living six, seven blocks away from Brace Bayou, got a foot of water. So uh, it's just one of those things that they're, I, I don't know what they called it, a 500-year flood or whatnot. I just happen to be at the right place at the right time. I live in a little island, I guess, if you want to call it. Yeah, right. That was a lucky escape. Yeah, I mean, I, I, when I think about all of my sort of acquaintances in Houston, I think I only a couple that I know about were, you know, sort of catastrophically affected um, mm -hmm. out in West Houston somewhere, you know, Buffalo Bayou, I guess, or. Um, but yeah, like you say, other people and places, it seemed like out at like where I used to spend a lot of time at the ConocoPhillips campus, sort of like one side of the bayou is okay and the other side is completely destroyed. So like that you say, it's like a stone's throw between places that survived and places that were really badly affected. And the photos were just horrendous. I mean, it's, no, it's especially around that area. I mean, that's where you have the Attic Reservoir. That's where you have the Barker Reservoir. Right. Uh, today I was talking to the current uh, president of uh, GSH, that's the Geophysical Society of Houston, and we were talking about uh, the next board meeting that's going to occur. Right now their building is underwater. We can't get to the building. They can't do anything aside from updating the web page, but with regards to like answering emails, it's just it's a huge loss. It's flooded. Everything around that area is flooded. I believe uh, BP, which is right around the corner, I don't think their offices are opening up for another week or two. So, good grief. Does anyone have a better handle on Hurricane Irma than I do? My information is from NOAA, and you know, you take that as far as you take those forecasts as far as you want. Supposedly, there's an area of high pressure coming in from the Houston NOLA side mm -hmm. that's going to force that thing up the East Coast. But so far, the NOLA forecast don't, I mean, the NOAA forecast don't show that. Um, so we're just all looking at it and, and hoping we don't get a repeat in Houston. Yes, I, I agree. I think uh, Florida right now is kind of bracing themselves in just the same way Houston reacted to uh, Hurricane Katrina back, I don't know, 2004 and everybody evacuated for Hurricane Rita. I believe a lot of people in Florida are probably reacting to the same way Hurricane Harvey, mm, right. just in its aftermath. So, mm -hmm. Well, it looks like Irma's getting pretty strong, so it's it's probably best that people get out of town. Right. 
Um, so one one thought um, I I did have about if we if we do go ahead with the hackathon was sort of converting it or broadening it maybe um, broadening the usual concept of geophysics in our realm to sort of the you know earth science and and doing something on machine learning uh, mm -hmm. or data science and um, weather climate floods. Um, Hydrography and so on. You've been playing around with that, haven't you, Graham? You, I see. I see in the show notes you're up to something. What exactly are you up to? Do you, I don't you not up to something. Well, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I am. I. I've been helping. I've just been trying to contribute time to help out with the Harvey recovery efforts. Uh, and the best way that I'm probably applicable there is to do data help of some sort. So. Uh, I've been helping to align FEMA um, evaluators, insurance evaluators, FEMA uh, restitution evaluators with sp specific skill sets to deployment agencies. So um, just simple d uh, data science project, um, building databases and, you know, doing joins to figure out who needs to go where because certain people have certain skills. Um, so that's, yeah, I thought that's actually where you were going to go with that, with that idea about sort of opening up the hackathon to other ideas. I think it would be awesome to do some sort of meteorology, um, uh, maybe not themed, but, but open, open the floor up to meteorology themed ideas. And even greater than that would be to try to use some public information about, um, recovery efforts, maybe to, to, immediately assist uh, with with the problems that are happening right now. Wouldn't it be cool if at the end of the hackathon we came up with a set of tools that could actually be used right now to help families? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that'd be awesome. I, I You know, if, um, I'm not very familiar with the sort of data sets and data sources um, there. So I don't know, maybe we'll put something out on Software Underground to see if anyone's got if we could pull together some resources really quickly, um, that would make me feel like there's stuff there that we could do. I just don't know anything about, um, you know, those kinds of data sets. I've had enough time keeping up with the subsurface. <laughs> but, I mean, and even if not, if we get to do what the original plan was, that that would be a great escape for people that are interested. We didn't sign up to the hackathon to do weather and this kind of stuff. The whole point is the whole point is for us to uh, get together and work on problems that we've been working on for a while and perhaps something with machine learning. Yeah, yeah. The no, grand totally. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go oh, carry on. It's really it's really confusing when he does that. Uh, he'll change clothes in a minute. Like it's, <laughs> I feel like that would be really cool. Like at what point did Graham change clothes? Did anyone notice? It's like the gorilla going across the um yeah, I mean, you know, fundamentally, the, the people do whatever they want at the hackathon. I mean, that's you know, they're they're completely free to take on any kind of project. They're really not um, that prescriptive, and uh, but it, but it always helps if you provoke people a little bit with data, data. Sets or or, yeah. or just ideas, you know. Um, and I, and I feel like you guys who are living through this stuff, uh, and not that we don't have big storms in Nova Scotia, we we do. They tend to be in the winter. But, um, you know, the, I, I feel like probably the people in the room will 
will have problems <laughs> that they are familiar with and maybe maybe want to have a go at solving. So yeah, maybe we just provoke people with that at the beginning of the event. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll see where it goes. Yeah. Uh, do you have a, a handle on when you're going to make that decision, Agile? Oh, uh, well, I, I, you know, I think tomorrow, basically. I, okay. I mean, I was hoping to make it today um, based on what SEG had said, but now they're saying tomorrow, so I'm going to say tomorrow. Okay. Yeah. We'll so, also, if you're watching this live, we'll post that information on the Software Underground and uh, potentially on the Undersampled Radio Twitter feed as well, so uh, people can right. cool. get an idea early. Yeah, and I'll, I'll be uh, also emailing all the participants um, them, themselves directly as well. Um, yeah, cool. I mean, I really, I, you know, I hope it goes ahead because I, I think there is, um, you know, there'll be some cool stuff to do. So we'll see. Uh, <laughs> I'm looking down the list to see what I, I know what I want to talk about. But <laughs> I know I, I know what you want to talk about, so we should probably start talking. You That's know. right. If we if we want to get out of here in the next four or five hours, we should probably get on it. <laughs> well, no, 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 no. I, I guess if, if we want if we want to get leave in the next three hours, we should talk about everything else. <laughs> Matt, are you blushing? <laughs> just get maybe I don't know. I just keep one away from it. I, I guess I was I was looking for the opportunity to segue somehow, but that's. Well, this is it. This is your opportunity to go. <laughs> by the wayside. By the way, um, Matt found a book um, by Elsevier that is. No, no, I didn't. Actually, uh, Fernando found it. Why don't you tell the story? Yeah, how, how did you come across this book? Fernando? Okay, so that's a funny story. So uh, a friend of mine actually emailed me. Oh, let me rephrase that. Somebody online has a subscription to Scribed. And they happen to come across this book by Elsevier about geophysics and geology. It's like, I, I, don't, I don't remember the name of the book, but they copied uh, chapter nine, which has to do with pore pressure. And that individual sent it to his friend and his friend emailed three of us, well, three people, including myself, and said, hey, uh, I'm glad to see that our contributions on comments that we posted on LinkedIn were part of a book, but I hate the fact that I was not even asked about this. So right off the bat, uh, I had a copy of the PDF with the, the, the chapter nine, and I started skimming through it, and I kind of realized, like, wait a minute, like these are all conversations that one particular group in LinkedIn, the uh, overpressure and poor pressure group has had over the last four years. Looking through it, it's like, that's like two thirds of the book. Uh, that's just questions from experts, quote unquote. And somewhere along the lines, I just thought like, wait a minute, like uh, when I would answer to a question or a post, on LinkedIn, or when I made a or when I would write a question, uh, I never thought it would end up being in a book. So I forward that information to about thirty of my closest poor pressure specialists and experts, and other people that were included in the book, such as Matt Hall and Chris Jackson, and it just kind of 
blew up from there. Yeah, I must say, just in passing, I, what is Scribed? Like, what is that website? It just seems like such a weird. It's basically just a collection of pirated books <laughs> and papers and stuff, isn't it? I, I I think so. It's like I think it's pirated books and pirated uh, articles, and you subscribe, and then you have access to these. But does it have a legitimate purpose, or is it literally just for like? That's really weird. Uh, the the way I always thought about it is kind of like the Spotify of books and articles. I see. Okay. I don't know if they pay royalties to the fact to have this access. Right. I I, I don't know. I'm not a subscriber. All I know is. That's where the original source came from. So uh, without mentioning any names, I do want to thank the person that forwarded me chapter nine because that <laughs> allowed us to uh, yeah, to kind of bring this upon. Uh, so like I said, so I forwarded to about 30 poor pressure specialists, just this chapter nine, and basically said, like, if I emailed you, it is because I saw your name on here. And right. I did not know that I was going to end up in a book and I'm sure neither did you. Um, <clears throat> after sending that email, there was about five people that came back and said, yes, uh, the author, and for those listening to the podcast, I'm doing the, the air quote unquote. Um, the author, quote unquote, uh, emailed about five people, basically asking for, for permission to use some of the comments that they made on LinkedIn. Yeah. Uh, I, I wonder and, if uh, if the people that he'd asked, because it, it like you know later has transpired that uh, indeed other people too were uh, were in fact asked. Um, correct. Although it seems like it wasn't very clear what was being asked for or the scope of the permission that was being granted. It sounded more like a sentence, not verbatim. Correct. Complete. Correct. So at least from the communications that I've gathered. Uh, a lot of people were asked if they could use some of their comments that they posted on a particular post, period. Uh, for the publication, 100% of the people that were asked said, oh, wait a minute, I did not know you were going to use everything word for word. I thought you were just going to clean it up and maybe use a sentence or right. or two sentences about a, a particular topic. This is just... Uh, this, parts of this book is just blatant copied and pasting from different uh, LinkedIn groups and different conversations. Right. With that in, with that in mind, after we started investigating, um, there's one particular author that was heavily quoted in the book, and he started looking at it and, and realized, like, wait a minute, like not the the sections that are not uh, question and answers, the, the, the sections that are actually lessons quote unquote well actually they are lessons but they're not by the author so i should have quote unquote the author <laughs> so the lessons that were in that particular chapter were not written by the author himself they were actually uh -huh. copied and pasted from actual articles that exist out there mm -hmm. at least for chapter nine one is an elsevier elsevier i'm sorry i don't i don't know how to say it i'm a foreigner and another one is from an spe paper that the mm -hmm. quote-unquote author ended up plagiarizing. Uh, with 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 that in mind, I started kind of looking more at the book and trying to figure out who else outside of uh, the poor pressure community 
was affected by this. And that's how I contacted Matt because you're on the book. Uh, Chris Jackson, who's been in this show, what, three times? He's certainly in the book. And as you start looking through what the images and the writings that are on the book, you can clearly see that the quote unquote author ended up copying and pasting sections from different websites or copying images from websites, period. Like uh, I believe one of the ones that I forwarded to you was from Drilling Info. Mm -hmm. So this book is not a, nobody wrote, everybody wrote this book except the author. <laughs> <laughs> and it's yeah. not edited. You can't say edited by so and so. It's just a bunch of stuff from different websites, copied and pasted, and put in a little pre pretty picture that Evan said is something from five years ago from Patrell. Yeah, the cover. The cover. I think. <laughs> I don't know if he meant that literally or if it's just that's what it looks like because it's one of these kind of crass, you know, Horizon 3D seismic volume, the sort of thing we've basically all seen a million times since 1996. Um, and yeah, it, it's it's really weird. <laughs> as a, What's especially weird is, you know, it's like a 450 page book, $130, you know, academic text from Elsevier, the, you know, the sort of, I think the largest academic publisher. And um, with, I would say, uh, a and you know maybe justifiably uh they are quite proud of their track record and consider themselves to be an important part of academic the academic sort of landscape and presumably have concerns about quality and stuff so that, i think that's you know this isn't just a sort of um niche publication from some publishing house you've never heard of uh this is uh, you know it, ostensibly the sort of book that libraries would just automatically buy. I suspect most academic libraries get access to it electronically as part of some sort of subscription package, you know, that is held up as legitimate content, which they would expect to sell multiple times over. And um, that's to me what's sort of really shocking, because I know that people put together content like this, like you see it at conferences and I mean, if you read a kind of more magazine-y, I don't want to say the leading edge goes into that territory, but I mean, some of the publications in our industry are pretty cut and paste out of, certainly out of press releases. Um, you know, I mean, some of the articles that get out there about software after SEG uh, annual meeting, for example, are just straight out of software company press releases. Um, but yeah, it's been Can kind of... The, the biggest thing is the fact that, like, somewhere along the lines, uh, people looked at this book. And when I'm looking at this book, I, like, clearly you can see that there's a fourth of the book that's actual content, which now we're finding out some of it is plagiarized. But a good chunk of it, it just seems like question and answers. And mm -hmm. somewhere along the lines, I don't know who was reading or editing this book hmm. and, and saw like these hundreds, how many number, how many names are there? 350? Yeah, that's what he says, yeah. 350 people making comments. And what I don't understand is like somewhere along the lines, the publisher didn't say, wait a minute, do we actually have permission from these 350 people making questions and comments 
whether or not it's okay for us to put this in a book. Right. So do you think that Elsevier explicitly requires permission from authors of content on all of their other publications? Matt? Well, um, somebody chimed in, I think, on the blog. So I wrote a blog post about this um, on Monday, I think, uh, after get, getting the email from Fernando and, and looking. We can put that on, on the notes, because it's definitely a great blog post that has a lot of information and a lot of comments. from. Yeah, the, the comments are awesome. Uh, and I, you know, I, I, it was kind of a, um, you know, a hot topic on Monday. So I wrote the, wrote the post relatively quickly. Um, maybe didn't research it as well as I could have done, but I also tried not to be unduly scathing or jump to too many conclusions, uh, right? And I, I, I framed it more as what I see as a sort of endemic uh, lack of understanding about copyrights and permissions in our industry and in academia in general than being a a deviant author or even Elsevier. I mean, you know, it's it's easy to pick on a big company. I think it's just a it's just a really poor book. I don't think there's anything particularly, you know, criminal about it as per se. Um, but anyway, the range of opinions something felt along the lines because like the author somewhere decided to plagiarize the book. When I was in grad school and even as an undergraduate student, I knew that you couldn't just copy and paste without giving right. proper citation to the, the words that you're writing about. No, and you, right. you couldn't just write word for word what somebody's doing until unless you decide to perhaps put it in, in a block format that you're explicitly saying that that is word for word. You're right. That's the thing that I learned in school. Oh, and I think that's totally... On the opposite end, you, you have the publisher that also like I feel like maybe they didn't do their due diligence with regards to examining the material itself before publishing it. So yeah, definitely. it's one of those things like you don't, both of them are at fault and I just don't yeah. know if you can place one more than the other. Well, so when I wrote the post, um, it wasn't clear. I, sus I had a suspicion because it's so common that um, the author did not have permission for some of the images. Um, like I say, it's just very common practice to just slap a URL or an author's name or whatever at the bottom of an image and put courtesy in front of it, courtesy ExxonMobil, but actually you found it and have no permission at all. Uh, and, and indeed, one of the comments at least bears out my suspicion that many people think this is fine and that this is how science works kind of thing. Like, we have to be able to use content in this way. And I'm like, well, no. <laughs> like, lots of people think that, but you're wrong. Um, but, you know, I hadn't come to light yet that there were tracts from other websites, for example, that government website, I can't remember exactly what it was, one of the research laboratories um, that was just word for word with no attribution at all, because all the LinkedIn comments are at least attributed to the people who wrote those words. So the author recognized, okay, I can't just present this stuff as a kind of mine. I have to name the people I got it from. But the case studies aren't attributed either, like the SPE paper that you mentioned. So those, so I, w I was uncomfortable with calling the LinkedIn stuff plagiarism because it was attributed. The other stuff, if it really is unattributed as it seems not, seems to be, 
Um, and all I'm going on is the the preview in Google Books, which is incomplete. Um, then yeah, it's that is that is firmly unethical. <laughs> so you even had a, a different level of complexity to this. Somebody created a set of uh, slides online, and this particular person did exactly what you're talking about, where they took uh, images and maybe not necessarily words, but maybe they edited to be their own, not necessarily plagiarized, but maybe eventually citing the particular uh, authors. And they made a particular set of slides for their short course. Those slides were plagiarized in this book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So it, yeah. it, 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 it's almost like this book has turned into the ultimate case study in correct, like academic sort of uh, ethics and copyright law. It's like find that should be a puzzle. Uh, so our brain teaser for this week: find all of the <laughs> ethical issues uh, with this book if you want to spend one hundred and thirty bucks on it, which you probably shouldn't. Um, if someone wants two examples so far of something that somebody took from somebody else, published it as their own, and this quote unquote author plagiarized it from them as well. So well, I, be I bet you anything that as we speak, somebody is photocopying pages out of that book to use uh, in their classroom without proper sort of copyright licensing. If someone wanted to t attack Elsevier for doing this, how would they go about that? Just don't buy the book. I mean, are you, are you suggesting sort of legal action or something? I, I don't know. I'm not. Yeah, I, I, mean, I would like to see the book retracted. I just think it's up to yeah. how, how would you make that happen? I can't make it happen. I, I think is from the comments, the, like I'm looking at my phone and my phone keeps blowing up from uh, Matt's post uh, about his blog post, and it just you see hundreds of people piling up after one another, saying, "One, to support practice, and two, I mean, what is somebody, the publisher, going to do about this? Three, if the publisher is doing this already, how do we know they're not doing it on other books or other journal articles?" And that's been the topic of today within the last hour on Twitter. So right now it's, like I said, September 5th, it's 539 right now. And if you look at posts beginning at, at about four o'clock, you'll start seeing hundreds of posts talking about like, well, wait a minute, like, I, I don't understand why I should subscribe to Elsevier articles when they're clearly plagiarized. It, it's all over the place. It's, <laughs> it's a mess. Yeah, I mean, I could, you know, I mean, um, I suppose, that uh, <laughs> maybe there's a financial opportunity for a lawyer to make a class action lawsuit on behalf of those 350 uh, people. I, I, I really have no idea, and I'm, I have no appetite for anything like that. Um, I'd Don't love you to have see appetite hmm? for moral restitution? Uh, I mean, I, I feel like Elsevier just saying this is a terrible book. We should never have. Uh, we should have caught this book. The two, I think, there's two Elsevier people named sort of thanked in the acknowledgements of the book, you know, commissioning editor or editor or whatever, and five anonymous reviewers 
I, you know, I mean, it's clearly if that's the process, there's something wrong with that process. And I'd love to see Elsevier actually say that and not just be like, quietly retract the book. And I, I agree that they need to retract the book and give refunds to anybody who bought it. You this, know. Is, this is my point. So rather than having all the authors and non-attributed website uh, editors shout in an echo chamber of blog post comments, why not, why not contact Elsevier or have so, a group of people? That. Yeah, well, and, and maybe, maybe we should have done that. Um, it, right away, it turned out that Chris Jackson had emailed Elsevier, um, oh. and he's talking to them tomorrow. He's talking to somebody tomorrow. So, um, you know, well, we should. That's the biggest thing is like, not, I, I don't think every author knows or every person that posted something on, on LinkedIn knew who to contact. I certainly did not. No. And I don't think a lot of the people that I emailed did. Uh, it, we just happened to find that Chris Jackson actually knew somebody at Elsevier. And through Twitter, we also know who, what's his name, Mr. Gunn. Right. So we're, we're kind of contacting the people that we do know. Right. So they're, they're, they're totally aware of the situation and, um, and of the blog post and uh, probably have been following that thread on Twitter. Um, and Chris, Chris has sort of got all the, uh, Fernando's been sharing all of these other examples of images and other sections of the text with, uh, or with Chris. So Chris knows about all that. And um, yeah, my hope is that something fruitful comes out of that conversation uh, tomorrow. But I could see SPE being, wanting to seek some damages of some kind because that that one paper that Mark Tinge, I think it was, had spotted. Um, what, is that right? Or maybe it was you, Fernando. Um, John Sang, he's one of the authors. Uh, Jen K. Sang, he goes by John. He right away he looked at it. He's like, "That's my paper," quote unquote, right. copying everything verbatim. I mean, that's uh, outrageous. Um, so I can see SPE getting uh, their knickers in a twist about that. Well, so like I share the same sentiments that Matt does. Like I don't, I'm not seeking any monetary uh, compensation from this. Uh, I think the book should just be retracted because it's poor science. And whether or not somebody else that holds the copyright to some of the content or images, such as SPE or uh, Drilling Info, who has one of the images in the book, that's completely up to them. Just leave me out. I just, I just want to make sure that people know that this book is uh, content that was not. Uh, what's the word? I, I didn't get permission to. Nobody yeah. asked my permission to be included in the book, so that's so, the main thing. But I, I, to me, the biggest thing is the fact that a lot of the people that that wrote comments and post on LinkedIn are now beginning to think like, wait a minute, now in a forum such as maybe LinkedIn or other research. Uh, ResearchGate. Yes, ResearchGate. Now, I, I think people might be beginning to question whether or not they would want to participate in that kind of forum. And that implicitly could also affect, let's say, uh, Software Underground. Yeah where they could say, it's like, well, wait a minute, like, I do not want to make a particular comment because somebody may be legally allowed to post it somewhere. 
But I th so there's a really interesting thing going on though here, which I, I, I guess I think I, I want to challenge. And that's this idea that books are somehow special. Like the, this, this, there's this sort of perception that, oh, I, you know, I didn't realize that was going to end up in a book. But it's like, well, well, why did you write it on li <laughs> like if <laughs> Do you know what I mean? No, so I what, think what you're saying is you you write things in a hurry on the internet. And you don't think too carefully about the technical content. I mean, to me, that's a reason maybe to be suspicious of stuff that's in LinkedIn or maybe not want to participate in those discussions if people are just sort of dashing stuff off without any research or or thought. That is worrying. But I mean, is that what people do? I certainly, I can't, like in Canada, with registered professional geoscientists, you're complete, like you can go chat to your neighbor about your area of expertise and that is considered to be professional advice. He can yeah. sue you if that turns out to be wrong, right? So uh, the, to me, there's no difference. So I, I think it's a tragedy if people start thinking, oh, no, I shouldn't participate in these forums. That would be an awful outcome. But you do need to assume that everything you write on the internet, including in your emails, will exactly. come to light and be on the front page of the newspaper tomorrow. I mean, that's how you've got to write online these days. The, the rule of thumb is like you do not write an email or you, or you do not write a post uh, that you don't want it to appear in court. That's every, every company that I ever worked for. That's what they tell you. Do not write anything you don't want it to be in a, in a court of law. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say there's two kinds of two different kinds of people that criteria. One which is about a quarter of the people that when when uh, that received my email with regards to this particular post, and they were under the idea that anything that they post on LinkedIn is public information. So after they posted, they they are completely okay with somebody else using that material because they posted it online. It's public. That's fine. Mm -hmm. But I would say the majority of the people are. Are kind of in the, this feeling like I wish I would have asked uh, somebody would have asked me about this yeah. because I would have cleaned it up a little bit and I posted this uh, this comment just not necessarily in a hurry but to help that particular person but a lot of these comments and posts are going to end up in a book that we don't know what that book is about and and the only reason I bring right. this up is in this particular LinkedIn group that that, that most of Chapter Nine comes from, uh, there's a lot of uh, not a lot. There's some opposing views about some things, and if somebody writes a book and maybe talks about fracture gradient being one thing and not necessarily right. another thing, and then you're quoted in it, 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 it gives the appearance that you agree with that particular concept. Mm. That's to me. That's the biggest thing is the fact that you don't know where your content is going, and if somebody asked permission, then you could have reviewed that little bit of information. Right. Yeah. And I, I'm not sure, but I, I suspect you can't edit comments once you've posted them. So you yeah. may have. You may have. Certainly, when I think about stuff I've written online, sometimes you might. Um, yeah. Cut corners, or, or uh, I don't know answer in a particular way because of the way the question was asked or something like that. 
So I, I, I buy all of that. It would be nice to get the opportunity to look at it again and go, well, actually, can I add this word or delete that one? Um, well, and to me, it's like, a, I guess, one of the topics that came up is that, at least on LinkedIn, people are giving their opinions or, or everything, but it kind of goes back into the fact that if, if something's published into a book, it's more important or more scientific. Uh, one of the biggest things that came up was uh, whether or not the company that this particular individual would work in uh, would allow that to end up in a book. Hmm. So let's say Billy Joe Bob works for Hess. Would Hess be okay with his comments about whatever end up in a book? Right. Well, that it's a that brings up a, yeah, another thing. I'm because, uh, yeah. I, I mean, I hear what you're saying. I guess I I'm okay with. I mean, that, that, that's what we do with articles. I mean, and yeah, like if is. you work for a company, and if you want to write about something, you submit it to your company, and make making sure that. They're okay with you publishing that piece of information. Yeah, but I can't, I don't like that behavior in companies. I think it steps over I'm not, I'm an not. important line. No, no, I know you're not uh, defending it or suggesting, but I but I wish we didn't think like that as a community of professionals. I wish and, we and I were. agree, but now a lot of people are like, wait a minute, like now my job is on the line because like now my comments ended up in a book and they show that this is my company affiliation. Yeah. That, yeah, that, right. Because it does, it does actually put people's companies. Billy there, Bob from Hess, like it, that yeah. might not hit their comments. It probably doesn't even work for Hess anymore. Exactly. <laughs> no, I, yeah, we, we need to get away. I made. I was at Marathon Oil, right. and I work for them anymore. So it could come across as if it was Marathon's best practice or whatever, yes. when actually it was just you. And I, and I think we need to. We we're part of that sort of collusion if you like not not you and i well <laughs> maybe we are but uh, our, the community does this to itself by ascribing people's comments to if if you do this to their employer and sort of saying oh that must be shell best practice no actually it's probably just that person talking about their best practice or their idea for how something should happen and we all know that companies have a horrible time propagating best practices around their organizations Actually, I've never been in an organization that's, that, that's had success with that. Um, so I, I feel like it's an unfair thing to, to, to do to ascribe that in that way. I hear you that that is a problem, but I think we need to defend our right to hold contrary opinions to the companies we work for and to our colleagues. That's part of being a professional. But I, And I do just want to say about this book thing that we also need to get away from the idea that books are somehow correct. You know, that, I mean, it's certainly not. The books are written by ordinary scientists who occasionally make mistakes or don't quite know, uh, you know, or understand something uh, fully, or or the science isn't quite there. And, it, you know, we, it's a tendency I detect to equate science with truth somehow, which is a very dangerous mindset in my view. And um, and things move on, things change, opinions change, new evidence comes in and we go, oh no, it's actually this way. So books end up being not true. So, uh, you know, I think it's important that something like a conversation on LinkedIn 
it's an important concept that it can be just as valuable as a chapter in a book or whatever. Right. And, and another thing I just want to say before I uh, finish this little diatribe is um, I'd also forgotten when I was saying earlier how, well, writing on the internet should be, you should, should be just as considered as writing anywhere else. But actually, a lot of, uh, and I don't know a lot about LinkedIn, uh, how it works, but I've, I don't know about that particular discussion group lots of discussion groups on LinkedIn are private, right? And you have to actually apply to join and someone has to let you in, um, which I think is just weird and seems to make LinkedIn very difficult to search because I can never find anything in that website. Um, but if this is a private group that this stuff was copy and pasted from, I think that is actually also a little bit different too. It is, it is. And, and I mean, I can't speak for every group on LinkedIn. I would say that the majority of the groups that I'm part of, 90% of them, I don't really pay attention to because you have everybody and their mother join and everybody and their mother trying to sell a particular product. Uh, with this one particular group, the overpressure and poor pressure group, you have, it's heavily monitored by Martin Gay, who is a poor pressure expert. I, I, I'll call him an expert. Um, and we try to decipher, like, basically block anything that's like commercial or whatnot, but it doesn't matter. There's still a lot of room for discussions and debates. And a lot of the times you may not want to agree with one particular topic or another. That's what that group is for, is for, for us to be open and discuss. Hmm. Not so is to it the book without knowing. Is it an open uh, group? It, it's a close it's a close group but you yeah. can ask them in and we will accept you as long as you come to terms with the agreement that you're not trying to sell a product you're not trying to advertise you're not harassing people you're not trying to uh, yeah, everybody's those, comments for a book <laughs> that should that, I, i'm sure mark will hear this podcast and he will probably add that on <laughs> i mean I, okay, so I, I do think that that puts a different spin on it. I mean, I see the group has um, over three thousand members, so it's not like a t you know, it's not like a room full of people. Um, it's not a it, you know, so there's every reason to think that there may be people in there who uh, you know who you don't know. So, so it's not like a private club, but still, I you know, I think that is a bit a bit different. Anyway, well, it's, it's and that's how I met uh, that's how I met Mark. I mean, uh, okay. I actually met Mark a long time ago at one of the poor pressure workshops. I want to say it was the one in San Antonio in 2001. Uh, but, but it was just more like a high and buy. Since then, uh, he's created this LinkedIn group. And now, I, I, I don't know, we're colleagues. I'm, I can email him about questions and he can email me, you know, if he has anything to say to me or whatnot. We know each other. We're, you know, when... I was let go from Marathon or when he was let go from Chevron, we communicated. It's one of those things that eventually you become friends with some of your colleagues. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's awesome. And he's, a, he's an awesome guy. And um, really, he's, well, both of you are well worth following on, uh, on Twitter. Um, I, I, the, the, I guess one other sort of, and I've got an agenda here, I fully, freely admit, but, um, I hope another outcome from this sort of thing is like 
that there is lots of actually open access content out there that is much safer for you to use, seek out and use in things like presentations and papers and so on. Um, there are plenty of ways of using copyright material uh, in your papers and presentations. You know, you just got to read terms and conditions of stuff. Usually they let you use a little bit here and there. There's fair use, blah, blah, blah. Um, but you can use as much uh, open access content as you want, stuff with things like Creative Commons licenses or GNU licenses. What's uh, Undersampled Radio's license there, Matt? Uh, yeah. I, I believe we use the Creative Commons attribution, do we not? It's a, that is correct. Yes. So oh, yes. Good so, guess. Publish something from an Undersampled Radio episode. I mean, that's, that. you can use the video. Excellent. OK. That's right. So you, you could make a book. Out of the transcripts of undersampled radio episodes, uh -huh. you can publish that book uh, under what? any license you like, as long as you give attribution to us. That is the only requirement. You don't even need to ask us. What would that book be about? <laughs> I could think of several titles for that book. I don't um, know if it would do very well with any of them. Is it related to the uh, book you're reading? What was that book again? The book I'm reading? Yeah. What's that book you're reading right now? That's made up. Computer Science Distilled. Yeah, Computer Science Distilled. I thought you maybe you changed it on me or something. No, no, I was just asking about what book you're reading. Oh, I see. That was a segue. <laughs> that, that was. <laughs> Sorry. 56 episodes in, you still haven't figured that one out yet. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so uh, Undersampled Radio Distilled is what it would be called. And coincidentally, I'm reading a book right now with the word distilled in the title. Ah. Um, I mentioned this book before on the show because um, Steve Purvis was reading it when we were in Paris on our mm -hmm. romantic getaway that we all had together. <laughs> and um, he said it was very good. And I trust his sort of uh, voice there because he's a very smart computer scientist, but was like, if you didn't do computer science at university and you're programming computers, you need to read this book. And he's right. It's got some really good contents by a young Brazilian programmer called Vlad uh, Filho, I think is how you pronounce that, but I'm not sure. And um, Ferraria Filho. Yeah. And uh, it, but what I really like about it, uh, because I'm a bit of a, what do they call it? An um, uh, aesthetist. That's not a word, is it? I appreciate the aesthetics of things sometimes when I choose. And this, the book's really nicely produced. So the really nice paper, really nice diagrams, good use of color, sort of sparing use of nice colors. Um, so it's unusual relatively to see that in a computer science text. Mm -hmm. And um, I, you know, I, I've said many times on the show, I like books with pictures. So it's, Ticking all my boxes. Nice. Fernando, how about you? What are you reading? Well, so, I, I mean, I wrote on the show now, so I'm reading uh, Edwina, the dinosaur who didn't know she was extinct. And I also read uh, The Naked Mole Rat Gets Dressed. So, uh, as you can probably figure from that, I've been reading a lot of children's books mm -hmm. because I have an 11 year old, a nine year old, they can read, but also have a three year old and a one year old. So, Nice. Most of the stuff that I've been reading has been reading to them, so I feel like I've almost memorized these books. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. So is, but, is the Edwina one remotely paleontological? 
kind of not really it's more of the fact that there's one little kid who is not happy about this one dinosaur that exists and it's nice to everybody and he feels like oh wait a minute like but wait a minute you're extinct you're not here you shouldn't be here and she doesn't care and to me it's actually the same thing as the naked mole rat uh it's about this naked mole rat that likes getting dressed and people are having opinions about him being dressed as a naked mole rat and he doesn't care he's like he's happy so i i, I don't know I, I guess i really like those two and th those have been on uh heavy repetition within my house but uh the other one that i actually did write was cryptonomicon which is the one that i started reading it's a good i'm one. about a quarter of the way through it's good okay Oh yeah, it's a, I, I love that book. I, I I'm I'm a sucker for Neil Stevenson, and that was that was one of my favorites of his. Uh, okay. So I, so Callum Bentley on Twitter is is uh, has been on a bit of a Neil Stevenson uh, bent recently. Sounds like and he's ripe for undersampled radio. Let me make a note. Yeah, right. Uh, we should get him on because I've been because I've had Snow Crash in my uh, ah. shopping cart for a hundred years. You probably, have you read that one? Yeah, I haven't. That, it's in my bookshelf, but I haven't touched it yet. So I was told that's the one to start with, Neil Stevenson wise. Yeah, I mean that's that's his um, master. Uh, maybe I won't say masterpiece, but that that's his most well known work. Uh, I thought I thought we I thought you read Seven Eves. No. Oh, someone else on the show read Seven Eves. Maybe, that was the one Callan just read. Ah. And I think then, and then he read Cryptonomicon or whatever it's called. Cryptonomicon. Yeah, which sounds like a conference for people who are into cryptonomics. Yeah. No, like yeah. I think he took it from uh, uh, crypto comics. No, we need, to, we, did, we need to start a new a new crypto comics thread. We'll we'll draw comics and then encrypt them and and see if anyone can. Nice. Hold on. So that when you decrypt, so you you write the comic and it's like Marvel characters, but when you decrypt it, it's DC characters. <laughs> crypto. We'll have Crypto Comic Con, and we'll invite Neil Stevenson to be king of all of it, and yeah. it'll just be the five of us. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's cool. Uh, what do you, oh, and what was the other thing? Oh, that Cryptonicon. It's cool. What, what about you? What are you reading, Graham? Yeah, well, I'm giving up. I'm giving up on a book that I started, uh, was telling you about last week called Democracy in America. Um, oh, what, what, from 1824 oh, or whatever it was? On the comments, I actually thought the name of the book was called Giving Up on Democracy <laughs> in America. <laughs> it seems to be a common thread, especially on Twitter these days. But no, I wanted to read a book that was... I was I'm tr I don't understand why democracy works uh, as a thing and then specifically in the United States and does it um no no but that's part of the question okay but you said you don't understand why it works yeah yeah no, okay <laughs> you're derailing me here <laughs> I think that um democracy works in a special way here and its dysfunctionality is part of its functionality in the states hmm. it's it's all of its bugs of actually features all of its bugs are the crumbly framework that that 
holds it all together. And I, that's part of the question. Why, how, how does it work? How did it work? How did it come to be? And, and how does it continue to work on that crumbly framework? Now, uh, where was I? Oh yeah, so I gave up on the book because it was the, the first uh, section out of many, many sections uh, was really fascinating because it moved, it, it was an intro to the entire work and it okay. moved very quickly and gave a nice summary and so it was fascinating. And then I got into the next section and <laughs> very, very slow. So. <laughs> um, they have turned off the air conditioning in my uh, office building and if you're watching this video you can tell by my perspiration that it's time for us to sign off. So I would suggest maybe not wearing <laughs> you notice I actually did a costume change. I took off my jacket. Um, but um, before, before well, we sign either off. Way, uh, before you sign off really quick, I, I know that you were asking about the need range and core pressure modeling. So yes. I wrote a couple of comments and I'll put on the show notes uh, a few more links that talk about what us poor pressure specialists are talking about nowadays. Cool. And when you get the slides up, we would also love to see those. If uh, Most definitely. let's do a let's do a poor, uh, just one for the memory banks. There, we'll do a poor pressure special sometime with Mark and Fernando. Yeah, yeah. it would yeah. be an honor. It's in the books. And Richard uh, Swarbrick was one of my profs at Durham. Really? Yeah, but I, and he so he taught a whole semester, but uh, it was well, a it was all sort of oil and gas stuff. I think we only did the one lesson on poor pressure. <laughs> Maybe there were two, plus a practical. And B, I don't know. I don't think I was a very good student in his class, I'm sorry to say. <gasps> oh, no, no. He's he's a great uh, a man. He's really good at explaining things in very educated, like being able to explain something to a student or somebody that doesn't know the details about poor pressure. He's excellent. Uh, uh, yeah. I know that I had a problem with one particular well that he happened to look at eventually. And we talked for about 30 minutes just talking about the science and everything that goes involved involved in it. He's, he's a great mentor. He's now a consultant. He's trying to teach. I, I think he uh, taught a class at EAGE. Mm -hmm. The best of luck. And he's a great mentor. For sure. If you'd like to be mentored by Fernando himself, you can find him on Twitter and on the Software Underground. Yes, Fernando, thanks for coming on the show. No, thanks, thanks for having Fernando. me. That was fun. Hey, Matt. <laughs> yeah, what, what can I do for you? <laughs> I got a minute. What are you? Okay. All right, you ready? What are you an expert in? <laughs> nice one, huh? Yeah, is that a, a, a reference to a programming language? No, I don't know. Whatever. What are you? Oh, what okay. are you an expert in? It just said the 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 unusual emphasis threw me off. <laughs> I'm waiting for you to press the button so the live thing goes away. Come on, uh, you know you're supposed to answer this you question. You want me to this answer it? Yeah, this is the sign-off thing we're doing now. I, remember? I, I reject. I, re I reject the label. Okay. Yes. There you go. First one, first time he hasn't been able to answer the question, folks. <laughs> See you next week on Under Sampled Radio, maybe with Callan Bentley. Bye. <laughs> Bye.